Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This is the Music Buzz Podcast. The Music Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dane Clark and also Hugh Syme. Our guest today on Music Buzz Podcast is Will Turpin, a singer-songwriter in his own right of his own tunes, of which we'll be talking about today, and also longtime bassist of the band Collective Soul, who are one of the most successful rock bands of the 90s behind seven number one hits in a seven-year period, and they've sold over 20 million records worldwide. And they've got a brand new record, which is awesome. Their 12th album called Vibrating. We'll talk about that today as well. So welcome to the music buzz, Will Turpin. Yeah, man. Glad to be here. Appreciate y'all having me on. Will, it's great to have you here today. Let's start talking about your, your record that came out a few years back, the Serengeti Drivers record. I was listening to that this morning, and there was a lot of stuff I didn't expect to hear on there that I heard. All the arrangements and stuff were, were great. I expected that. There was a lot more keyboard than I expected to hear. There was a couple of, of different kinds of feels like the on and on was kind of a bluegrass vibe with mandolin. Very cool tune. Didn't expect it. And Belong, I really dug that with the congas, kind of a funky thing with that cool guitar riff. Were you singing all the tunes? Yeah, that's me on vocals. Yeah. I assume you're playing keyboards or the songs were written on the keyboards. Yeah. I mean, this can go 
for a little bit, just giving you a little bit about my background, piano was my first instrument. Is that why there's an old upright piano on the on the road in the desert? <laughs> I didn't think about it that way, but yeah, that makes sense. I like that. Yeah. It was my, it was my first instrument too. Uh, you went straight to the cover artwork too, didn't you? <laughs> Tell us about your musical background. Yeah, so I mean, I grew up in a, a musical home to say the least. My mom wasn't musical, but my dad, uh, his whole life, he wanted to be a musician, and he was. He um, he was signed to Atco Records underneath Atlantic Records uh, in a band called Smoke Rise. And very soon after that, he had just been out of the army. Um, he enlisted and tried out for the army band, but he got out of the army. My grandfather was renting a home that he first owned in, in the 50s. And my dad and my mom moved there. And that's where I lived for a little bit. Uh, and that home had a basement uh, that was unfinished and it had space upstairs. And I must have been two or three years old when my dad started the music store upstairs. And uh, in 70, around 75, he decided he was going to build a studio to obviously facilitate what he was doing. He was in bands and uh, he was interested in recording bands. My dad was that guy that in an era where you couldn't go to YouTube and learn how to build a studio. My dad would, our dining room table was always books, notes, drafting tables. Uh, he would just find the book and he would figure out how to do it, you know, and, and he always had a good group of friends around him. You know, it was always a, back in that day, it was always a team effort too, right? You know, you remember when people used to actually just stop by the music store just to see what was going on, you know? And are we talking TAC Atari era or are we talking Studer and Revox? And he did get a Studer uh, eventually, but yeah, the first the first machine would have been an eight track machine in 1976. I've still got the two inch machine because uh, I own the studio now. I took ownership of my father's studio when he passed away almost four years ago. The uh, I still got the two inch machine, but yeah, man. And there was a side room in our house too. Drum set, piano, albums. I used to put put on albums and play drum set to them. So my first instruments were piano and drums. Then the small town story happens with Ed working at my dad's studio when he got after a year of Berkeley. He's he's right in my dad's studio back at home. My dad gives him the green light to use any extra time at that studio to work on his craft. And Ed Ed did not uh, miss a beat. He he took full advantage of that and. Me and my friends, including his brother, Dean, we watched Ed hone his craft and we were fans. And, uh, you know, the short story is as soon as we got out of high school, we started joining his band. Uh, his friends were getting married and getting real jobs. Uh, he's he's seven, eight years older than the core of the original band. And I was the last one to join. I was in I was in music school. I was a music major. I had switched to orchestration. So, like, you know, the arranging and the piano stuff, it's it's really what's in my head. Not really a bass player necessarily, but I was the last one. I remember, I remember calling Ed and uh, telling him that I would play bass, and he's like, "You sure you can play bass?" I was like, "Got my best friends all around me, and I know your music. I think I can play bass." And uh, and so that's how I ended up on bass and Collective Soul. Man, I love being part of that rock and roll rhythm section, and and kind of feeling like that's my role, locking in the the ups and the downs, and locking in the rhythm sections, the arrangements. You know, I've got all these other things that start on piano for me. A lot of them start with Wurlitzer. You heard that also. But it's good. Me, Dean, and Ed have always thought that it's good to exercise your artistic, uh, you know, tendencies outside of the band as well. So I just thought that this record would have been, you know, I thought it was a solo record. And uh, yeah, a lot of them started on piano and keyboards. Did you orchestral sc schooling to where you are comfortable scoring and you know how to arrange instruments within the orchestra? Definitely. I know a lot of musicians get into orchestrating, but then they end up getting someone 
to work with to actually do the scoring. You know what I'm saying? The actual. Yeah, I get some string charts every now and then, but also when it's when it's pop music. I mean, literally, the most we get into is four parts. You know. And most of the time, so we don't want to make the mix sound too fat. You want everything to be in its own space. It's, it's really more about two or three parts and which parts do we double and which parts do we bring to the front. Yeah, I used to look at a 76 bar staff and understand what that meant and have to analyze it. And uh, and music theory, you know, all that stuff I really love. But, uh, you know, in rock and roll, it's more about feel and understanding how to get that feel across the speakers. Do you find when you're writing on piano, I've talked to other musicians that play piano, and when you write on piano, the tendency is for you to end up with Maybe I'm Amazed or your song or a piano song. Have you got to where you can write the song on piano but visualize stripping the piano out of the actual arrangement to where it becomes something else? Or do you find piano is always at the root somewhere in the track? For me, especially when when it comes to songs, it's, I, I sometimes feel creative and I can sit down and maybe something will, will come about uh, and I'll just start just, just trying to be creative. But for the most part, the songs that are good, the ones that stick around, they kind of just, they happen. They just happen right there. And I can, I can hear a verse and a chorus and I understand what the meaning of the song is pretty instantaneously. And you, you know where that needs to go instrumentally at that point when you're hearing that in your head. I kind of know where the, the core is. And then, then the fun part is getting in the studio and, oh, I didn't, realize Amanda Lynn's going to lead this whole song on and on. But I did start that one on acoustic, not on piano. So you can, and that's the one you said was bluegrassy. I did start that one on On and on. Yeah, I didn't know uh, the mandolin melody was going to be a theme throughout that whole song until we got into it. My buddy Jason Ford on mandolin just started ripping some beautiful parts. And and I moved them around. I like like using Pro Tools and figuring out where to put some of these beautiful places. You use these tools. They're wonderful to have. You don't have to cut that two-inch tape anymore, you know? <laughs> you mentioned the band, you know, starting out with Dean and Ed, and, and you three are the core, really, original members, if you will, of the band that have been in the band the entire time. So who are, I mean, we were talking about the Collective Soul before the the call here a little bit. And, you know, when you hear a Collective Soul song in the radio, you know it's you guys. You guys just have this very unique sound. So who are your biggest influences from uh, from the perspective of the band? I think... The band were super steeped in the 70s uh, and some of the bands that bled over from the 60s, Rolling Stones, Beatles. I know Beatles didn't bleed over, but believe me, the Wings, all everything Wings did, everything Lennon did in the 70s. We're super steeped in the 70s. But the 80s, like the bands that we shared that we really, really looked up to as far as like our generation. Uh, U2 would have been a big deal in excess you know, what was considered alternative back then. The police would have been a big deal to us. But th- those are the ones we consider in our era. Uh, and even stuff like the outfield. I used to, gosh, I used to digest those outfield records over and over. Man, those are so good. They are. They get better and better the more you listen to those guys, too. And I, I know that he passed away, I think, during COVID time. Uh, he passed away. I, right about a year ago. Yeah, I was just thinking the other day I heard him on the radio. I was like, damn it, I would have loved to have seen them because I never saw him. Those records, I saw, I remember seeing them one time open up for REO Speedwagon in Atlanta. Me and my friends were standing up, singing every word. And and we we couldn't have been more than 18, maybe 17. But I remember like one of the first times in my life, I was like, I'm going to take this crap sitting down. I turned around to this adult behind me and I was like, this is the band we like, man. You know, I'm going to stand up and sing. 
I'll sign up thing for REO too, but <laughs> get over it, mate. That's right, pal. <laughs> yeah, they've got a lot of good too. There's no doubt about it. So I've got some collective soul stories. One of them I have to tell you because it's actually pretty great. I had a show with you guys one time in St. Louis. You guys were playing at Soldiers Memorial downtown as part of the, the I think it was Rib America Festival. And backstage, whatever, did meet and greet stuff. And I remember dealing specifically with Ed because he did a couple interviews with Casey and something else over there. And then like a week later, my family and I at the time was just me, my wife and my first son. He was little. We're in Great Wolf Lodge in Cincinnati, Ohio, sitting there eating like, you know, crappy cheeseburgers. And I, and no one else is hardly in there. And I look over and sitting at the bar is this guy. And I'm like, damn, that guy looks really familiar. Where have I seen that guy? You know, and I just keep eating and thinking like, who is this dude? I've seen him before. And then it clicked in my head. I'm like, that's that's the lead singer of Collective Soul. <laughs> and I'm in Great Wolf Lodge of all places. I walked over to him. I said, and he looked at me like, because we had just seen each other within a week. And he looked at me like, where have I seen you before? And both of us kind of did. And I'm like, you're Ed from Collective Soul, aren't you? I'm like, why are you in Great Wolf Lodge? <laughs> he goes, I'm not just hanging out here. I've got a family too. <laughs> but uh, anyway, pretty funny. We find ourselves in some interesting spots, you know, got to take care of logistics. You know. <laughs> I guess. But I remember playing you guys back when I started in college radio. I was playing uh, that first record and the second record on, on college radio at the time. And I actually uh, came to a show and interviewed Dean backstage for the radio station and got a radio liner and stuff. I don't remember what album that was on, but there's my two stories. So we might our, our paths have crossed before unbeknownst to either one of us. You're a promoter, man. You've crossed paths with Collective Soul. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. You guys have you guys really mix well with a little bit of everybody. You know, some bands from that era, it's like they really can only tour with other bands from that era where you guys can play with Sammy Hagar. You can play with a Soul Asylum. You can play with a Stone Temple Pilots. You can play with Aerosmith. I mean, that's got to be I don't know if you realize it or not, but that's pretty unique you didn't get you somehow didn't get pigeonholed was that on purpose or do you look back on it as kind of like kind of luck and in the beginning a lot of writers would try to pigeonhole us and then the more records we would make the more it became very apparent that there's really no there's no true pigeonhole for us but what we would say is if the beatles are rock and roll and they can have helter skelter and they can have long and winding road, then we're a rock and roll band. Quit trying to pigeonhole us. And that's where we live. We, we've got a bunch of different influences and we bring them into every one of our albums. Certainly. The vibrating record that I was listening to today, it reminded me of, they just came out with, the, for all you Beatle nerds out there, the Revolver, where they stripped it back in the deluxe version of Revolver. And if there's a record that ever was what you were just talking about with every song being a different thing. That was the first time that had ever happened in pop music. And that's kind of what I was, when I was listening to vibrating, I was thinking, man, these guys aren't afraid to do that. And that's a bold step, you know, where every song's like, you know, you got tax man, then Eleanor Rigby, then I'm only sleeping. I mean, in the first three songs, you've run the gamut of any kind of feel that you could muster up in quote unquote rock music. And you guys do the same thing. Well, I mean, yeah, it's a great example. My hair's just stood up when you mentioned those first three songs. I'm still super passionate about, about rock and roll, but yeah, man, just like I said, if the Beatles are a rock band and you didn't pigeonhole them, then please don't try to pigeonhole us because we're a rock band too. And that's all we are. That's been a band that a lot of people have clearly been inspired by and 
got into music because of, but you're so, you're so right. They're, they're so eclectic. Um, and they, I think they were pretty lucky to have George Martin too, but these boys had ears that went back to, had got, you know, they were bringing George Formby or, you know, classical music and so on into their, into their midst. Um, I, I need to ask you about your album covers, Dose, and uh, even the vibrating album. That one is quite, it almost feels like a hypnosis cover. There's something going on between that couple. Tell me about who do you look to for your album covers? How involved are you in the actual creation of your, your visuals? Uh, we are. We're inspired by art. So, yeah. And we were inspired by album covers as art, thanks to people like you. We're the ones that are making the shots. Uh, I'll, I'll reference Ed again. Ed, Ed's super artistic, man. And he he comes up with a lot of things that, that we, you know, we all get the, get in there and find the uh, boundaries and figure out what's going to be cool. And But uh, for, for a lot of those things, it probably started in Ed's head. Um, I remember the dosage record was always, um, it was always hailed as, a, as like, a, I think we got top 10 cover of the year in 98 or something with the dosage cover. Yeah, man, it's, it's, it's art and it needs to, you know, we don't now, and who would have bet this? Now we do get to see vinyl again. We do get to see albums again. Who would have bet that 20 years ago? But, uh, but that's the way we always look at it as a piece of art, you know, and not, and, and we also, from the very beginning, we're like, the last thing we ever want to see on a cover of our record is us. You know, we, we wanted concept art. I understand that completely. That's always one of my first questions when I'm working with a band is, do we care to be visible or are we going to be more like Pink Floyd and the Beatles, even though the Beatles were on Rubber Soul and albums like that, but they've had a lot of conceptual covers. One of the most brave covers in history is the White Album. What a great cheeky move, man. Dude, I, I didn't uh, ever think about that as like being pretty brave and bold. That's That's true. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's many people that could have done it. Speaking of of creative fathers, my dad bought me a a jigsaw puzzle, a one thousand piece jigsaw puzzle of the White Album. <laughs> oh, oh wow! And how far along are you on that? He's still working on it. Yeah, even the very painterly covers, Collective Soul, the green and the blue one with the stripe. Even the, I think it's the best of. It's still dosage or something. Was it Seven Year Itch? That was the Atlantic Record years. It's kind of opposite of the white album. It's all black, you know. Yeah. And then there's the rabbit, you know, which is quite cool, too. Just that sort of out of focus rabbit is cool. It was just a self-titled record, the second self-titled record. But uh, yeah, it's referred to as the rabbit record now. Yeah. I got to say one thing about your band on your records, on your Serengeti uh, driver's record and all the stuff you've done in Collective Soul, but vibrating, especially again, the arrangements that you guys do. How long does it take you? to figure out those arrangements. Do you all sit in the same room and do it? Is somebody kind of doing it in a Pete Townsend way where here's a drum machine and da 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 learn this? Or how do you guys approach that? Because they're very meticulous. They're very great, really smart arrangements. You know, Ed starts with amazing melodies and good ideas. But yeah, we we get in the room and we go by field. We throw ideas around and it's in, in some regard it's the same way it's been for 20 something years now. We we go by feel. Uh, we just try to follow a path that's out there. I, I tell people all the time that when we're in that zone, where we're all together in the room, we're trying to figure out how to make the energy flow proper on this song. I just, uh, I try to listen. I try to take in more than I'm putting out. So when you're creating, it's like, that's kind of a misnomer. I think a lot of people do that, but they don't understand. But it's a misnomer. So, so many other people, when they pick up an instrument, they think they're supposed to create there. 
they're constantly thinking about what what can I put out? What can I put out? And I I always just listen and listen as much as I can. And then eventually we find it. We find it just by listening and it comes to you. So that's kind of, I mean, it's a little uh, esoteric or whatever, but. That's the problem with a lot of musicians. They don't listen. They're, you know, they're going, oh, let me get this. Let me work this in here. And that's one thing I'll say about, again, about your arrangements. I mean, all the parts work together and you can tell the drums and the bass are just synchronized beautifully. And that's because we're listening, man. I, I tell a lot of young musicians this all the time. Your most powerful weapon is your ears. I tell them that all the time. Tell me about Jell. I mean, I'm just, I'm looking at the artwork for Jell. It reminds me of Gerald Scarf from The Wall or, or uh, what's his name? Uh, Ralph Steadman. That's an interesting cover. That's a soundtrack, right, Jell? Jell was on a soundtrack, but it was on the second record also, the first self-titled record. Tell me about that artwork. I'm not sure what was on the single artwork, really, to be honest with you. <laughs> it looks like something from, if you know Gerald Scarf or the, characters from the wall it's quite manic you know it's like ralph steadman it's very different you're gonna have to you're gonna have to go back will and look at your artwork how many years ago was that (laughs) (laughs) right you've slept since then that's the gel cover there we go yeah that was uh that was reference to uh it was on the jerky boys soundtrack so technically that was the jerky boys artwork oh yeah jerky boys i forgot about them (laughs) okay yeah yeah so i i've got some questions on the live side what was the first concert you went to as a fan yeah, the first one, the first arena I stepped into, it was, I was in 10th grade and it was U2 Joshua Tree. And yeah, I mean, I remember stepping in that arena and it's like, whoa, it's all, all it is is a stage and a bunch of lights. I love this. And then, of course, it was a lifelong uh, experience to be able to see that record live. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Joshua Tree, I actually worked on the, uh, you know, the Joshua Tree tour that came back and did stadiums a few years ago. That was, I don't know if you, did you get a chance to see, I know you saw the first one. Did you get a chance to see the the recent one? Oh, uh, okay. No, I didn't see that one. I, I've seen them a couple of times since then, but yeah, I haven't seen that one. Um, where was that show at? It would have been at the Omni in Atlanta. It's no, no longer there. It's in the same spot. There's a new arena in the same spot. But yeah. I also like to ask uh, a lot of times too is, you know, you've had a long, you know, career now and, and you've got the chance to play with a lot of different people open for different bands. But what are what are some of those what are some of the stories you can tell us kind of those pinch me stories where you're kind of like, I can't believe I'm in this situation or, you know, over the years when you look back, you share a few of those. I, I kind of wish and I kind of don't wish I wish we had like cameras that we held around us all the time in the 90s. You know, we didn't do that in the 90s. Uh, but yeah, man, I, I've been Fortunate. That's one of the best things that, that's come about with, you know, due to this career is uh, all the great people we've got to meet. I mean, you mentioned Sammy Hagar. I, I, I'll reference this one all the time if people talk about it. The, the 95 tour with Van Halen really changed us as a band and all of us as individuals. Those guys, they took us under their wing. It was like um, and it wasn't a father figure. It was a it was an older brother figure. You know, it, they just took us under their wing. They're like. You guys got something. We're going to support y'all. Check this out. Here's how you do it. You know, and they really helped us out. I mean, um, that's right. When we realized our first manager probably wasn't shooting straight, they helped us start that path. Um, and I still uh, one of my I call them relics. One of my favorite relics is the bass that Eddie Van Halen gave me. Um, so I think about those days and I'm like, wow, man, we, we, it was three months of arenas and um, Eddie Van Halen 
and Sammy, Michael, they were in our dressing room every day and we were, we were given carte blanche until we, until we screwed up and we never screwed up. That was smart. Eddie, Eddie was a setup too, man. He was, Eddie always wants to talk to people and he wants to, you know, he, he talked plenty to Sammy and Michael over the years, I'm sure. And his brother. So he was in our dressing room all the time. So we would just talk about random things. Right. And, and Eddie Van Halen, you probably heard the stories, but everywhere he goes, he's got a guitar on his neck. The cigarettes either up here on his neck or his headstock or in his mouth. And back then he was carrying around non-alcoholic beers. Uh, but he, it was a setup. He's like, we were talking about guitars. He's like, it's like, yeah, I've only, you know, I've only got these two basses, you know, I just started playing bass three years ago. You know, what do you want your next bass to be? And, I, and Eddie asked me, I was like, yeah, I want to, you know, I was, like, I was into all black. I was like, all black, black pickups, black pick guard. And I need a five string. I've never played a five string. And literally, even though I was talking to Eddie Van Halen, because he was in my dressing room all the time and we were just chatting back and forth all the time, I didn't even see the setup coming. But about two weeks later, five string music man in my dressing room. And then on top of that, he had his guitar tech use his communication, whatever comm he was using. When I walked in the arena, Eddie followed me in the dressing room and there was, and he, I didn't know he was behind me. He watched me open it up. Yeah. Wow. That's great. That's very cool, man. That's pretty tough to beat. I mean, that's, that's real story. tough to beat. It's a relic. <laughs> and, and the bass is one thing, but literally we learned so much from them. And still, when we see Sammy and Michael today, it's a super special reunion. Do you have that bass nearby or is it, to, it's in storage? I do, but I've got, I see like eight cases. <laughs> we can That's wait one now. of them <laughs> I'll, I'll do i'm gonna start doing some shorts on all my bases from my studio i'm gonna i'm gonna do some like hey here's here's this one like you know maybe two minutes at the most you should man i mean that story alone i mean you should just the story behind those things i mean that's yeah you should do that that's great story man depending on how many you have i mean if you have a thousand bases you know you get to episode 500 you might be like okay dude we got it but. it's not getty lee i got getty lee's big base book right behind me it's it's not getty lee but uh i did catalog all of my uh instruments in the last month pictures and serial numbers uh 33 bases not again not not getty lee but it's pretty pretty big number how many bases did getty have as much as i know getty very well for 46 years now 50 years actually Oof, I don't know what his total number would have been, but he started collecting, and he once he started collecting, he really got into it, man. Um, You're preaching to the choir. I mean, if you've ever seen his baseball collection, I've seen it. I've seen it on video, <laughs> or his wine cellar, or <laughs> yeah. So once he got into classic bases, and I think I was watching the, it was a cool interview. I can't remember who it was. It's a really cool interview, uh, like a sixty minute interview, but. Yeah, they showed his his base uh, baseballs and all all the other collections. But he talked about when he started collecting bases and stuff, and and how he would he got to travel around the world and collect bases. I'm curious with with that glut of bases that you have. Do they all have purpose, or is it just acquiring because you like to collect them? Do you ever find when you're doing a session that your tech your tech brings all of them to the session because each one has a place, or do you pretty much rely on a core set of base? I, I will use some different stuff. Like we're, we're currently in production on a, on a record. That's a lot of piano and strings. Um, and I, I picked up a new bass, an Epiphone viola bass, um, kind of similar to um, the Hofner. But currently, yeah. But the Hofner's for me, every time I picked up a Hofner, 
it's so lightweight. It's just the tone. I, look, just because Paul McCartney can make something sound good does not mean it's a good bass. You know what I mean? It's a so, one-trick pony for sure. It's a one-trick pony. I couldn't get really good tone out of it. But the Epiphone viola bass, they, they, they did a little bit of a hybrid. And it, get, it has a little more power and a little more weight to it. So I'm using that. Um, but I've got a couple of Stingrays that are on Collective Soul Records from, from, from the day. I got a 65 Jazz. It was my father's. It's on a lot of records. Um, I got two Precisions they made for me in the custom shop that I use a lot. I got a PRS that Paul Reed gave me in the 90s, a PRS bass with a handwritten serial number on the back that you wouldn't believe it, but it's a small scale, short scale. It sounds like a monster coming at you. It's all over Collective Soul Records. There is a circle of probably seven that I've used more. But I don't keep bases around that don't that I don't think have a use someday. Who do you listen to? Who have you admired as far as bass players are concerned through the years? You know, definitely McCartney. Uh, I, I love this. I love the simplicity of uh, Adam Clayton's lines, how he can not play a super crazy melody, just a just a nice little driving rhythm. And it can kind of be the 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 soul, the motor of the song. Um, I was always a big fan of Sting's artistry. Um, um, John Paul Jones, that's a huge, huge man. John Paul Jones getting on keys, he's on mandolin. His bass line, give me a break, dude. Those bass lines on the Led Zeppelin tunes are insane. Uh, there, I mentioned Paul McCartney one more time. But. It's okay, he could get two. Well, awesome, congratulations on uh, the new record, uh, for the band. And uh, it's, and you're gonna, and you got some new solo stuff in the works, is that right? You got a, you got one in the pipeline, right? We do, we have one in the pipeline. And a super exciting thing, we're doing it in Palm Springs at Elvis's Palm Springs home. We're going to record a record, do some Elvis songs, have some guest singers come in and sing Elvis songs with us. Wow, man. So, uh, wow, cool. So this is Collective Soul doing this. It, it is. It is Collective Soul doing this. And uh, yeah. So I, I have to tell you, I had the privilege of speaking to Priscilla Presley a couple of years ago. I finished designing a book which was about the experience that uh, Steve Binder, who was the director and producer of the NBC comeback special in 1968. Um, and that was what they subsequently made the film about with, uh, with Boz Lerman and Boz did the forward for the book, but it was, it was a treat just out of nowhere in my career to be kind of anywhere associated with the unlikely, you know, Elvis Presley and, and to have had a phone call conversation with Priscilla was a treat. It was great. Yeah, we we've always been fans of Elvis, and uh, you can always you can always go back and look at his career and find something new and exciting, and and like you didn't know that, you know, really. You can also understand the segue between him and uh, and the Beatles, of course, and the Shadows. You know, we actually did in two thousand three. The uh, John Mellencamp Band did a live broadcast uh, from Graceland in one of the rooms, not the Jungle Room, but so we sat up and did the we we did a covers record a bluesy kind of record and we did a bunch of songs from that so it was a trip to just be inside that bill his home for all day long and you had to one time i got up and sat in a chair you weren't supposed to and it was like no gotta get up off there i was like okay sorry it's the room we're playing in i just got off my drum stool for a second and like sat down for literally a second and it was like oh shame on you Dave. i know it Still a chair, isn't it? <laughs> I wanted to go shoot some TV sets out right after that, you know? There's still some bullet holes in Graceland. <laughs> Come on. What about solo stuff? You working on some new solo stuff, too? I do have some new solo stuff coming out. 
Um, but right now I'm just, I'm really deep into, um, you know, I raised a family, uh, spent, spent a lot of time with my kids when I would be away from collective soul and I'd produce a little bit, but my kids are older. My youngest is 17 and uh, I'm ready to go full swing into, into production. So I've got a lot of productions coming out right now through the studio. Um, a band called, uh, Red and the Revelers. I got their shirt on right now out of Mobile. Some young kids from Woodstock, Georgia just released a record. Uh, the Corduroy Blues, the name of the band. Check that one out. Uh, it's hard to say a band sounds like Beatles and Queen and they're only 21 and 20 years old, but uh, check it out, see what you think. But I, I'm full I'm full on into wanting to, on my spare time, produce other acts right now. This string and piano-centric project you're working on, is that uh, for your band or is that a separate project? That's for Collective Soul. Oh, it is. Oh, it is. And a lot, a lot of times, even on even on my records, funny enough, uh, I didn't play all those bass tracks. I had Mark Wilson on "Belong." Uh, I had a couple, about three or four of the songs I didn't play bass. On. Well, thank you, Will, for joining us and uh, continued success to you. Yeah, appreciate you guys. Let's, uh, let's do it again next week. And we'll release another record. Do this again. Yeah, man, pleasure. to achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shot? Would they shot? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom is dead. My mom is right there. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.